Scaring kids, 10 out of 10. Hello, I'm Mark Standish, and you're listening to Critical Faith. This podcast is coming to you from the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics at the Institute for Christian Studies. ICS is a graduate school of philosophy in Toronto, where I'm a junior member. We're gathering friends and members of our ICS community here on this podcast to talk about all things faith, scholarship, and society, and the many ways those things interact. We hope Critical Faith gives you a bit of a glimpse into the everyday life of ICS. My name is Andrew Tebbett, and I'm postdoctoral research associate at the center. And today we're bringing you a second episode in our series of conversations about the challenges facing philosophy and Christian faith in the wake of 2020. It's been a tumultuous year, and many of us have been left wondering how to look ahead as we think about the increased visibility of systemic racism, the effects of the Trump presidency, and the ongoing reality of the pandemic, to name a few things. Focusing especially on old and new political questions, this series invites scholars and educators within and outside the ICS community to tell us about what's at the forefront of their minds as they contemplate a post-2020 world. Today, we're joined by Dean Detloff, a doctoral candidate and sessional lecturer here at ICS, whose academic work uses media theory to explore Christianity as a political technology, and by Matt Bernico, an independent researcher and writer who holds a PhD from the European Graduate School and who works at the intersection of media, politics, and religion. Dean and Matt are also longtime collaborators on The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics, in which, as they put it, the two of them talk about how to fill the hungry with good things and send the rich away empty. As keen observers of our political landscape, Matt and Dean seem to us at Critical Faith to be great people to invite into our conversation about faith and politics in a post-2020 world. So let's get started. The past year has posed its fair share of challenges. In the midst of a global pandemic, and in light of our increasingly polarized political landscape, we've seen many of our most familiar assumptions and categories questioned. So at Critical Faith, we wanted to take the opportunity to reflect on how the events of the last year have affected our ways of thinking, and on what our role in society can and should be as political philosophers working in a faith tradition. Today, we're continuing this conversation with our guests, Matt Bernico and Dean Detloff. Matt and Dean are academics and journalists whose work addresses the intersection of media, religion, and politics, as well as the relationship between Christianity and leftist politics. So welcome, Matt and Dean, and we're looking forward to hearing what's been on each of your minds lately. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. 
All right. I uh, I wanted to begin just by recalling an event years ago at Einstein's, uh, the pub that used to be below uh, ICS, which is where I, I believe, I think this is right, where I, I met you, Matt. I don't know if you remember meeting me, but I'm pretty sure that somehow we all got together at Einstein's and Dean was there and, and you were there. I think that's where we met. Um, yeah, that's right. You remember. Yeah. And you'll have to verify this for me, though. I recall that as that also being the first time that you two met in person. Is that right? I think it might have been. Yeah. I mean, Dean and I, uh, we met <laughs> we met online uh, very ephemerally. And then, yeah, I, uh, I went to uh, ICS to hang out. I think that's the first time I met Dean. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, we went to a conference at U of T. Oh, that's right. That's what it was. Right. Yeah. I just thought it was funny because you two obviously knew each other well, but met online and then out of that decided to start a podcast together. <laughs> yeah, you've got it right. Your memory is accurate. <laughs> <laughs> That's just how people meet in 2020. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So yeah, with that in mind, I just wanted to begin with each of you telling us a bit about your your background um, and your, your academic work, especially your current academic work. And then also if you can sort of explain how it came about that the two of you got together on um, on the podcast of the Magnificast. Sure. Yeah, I am a, um, as you said, a doctoral student here at ICS at the the tail end of my program and do some teaching on things like Christianity and Marxism. Um, so that's kind of my current academic work is finishing up that stuff on media theory for my dissertation and then doing a lot more research in the last couple of years on things like the Marxist tradition and Christianity and political theology. Um, Matt and I met on Reddit uh, a long time ago when we were both undergraduates. Um, and over time, it just, I guess, fortuitously, we got interested in all the same things, both in terms of uh, religion and philosophy and lots of weird niche interests. And we collaborated on some research and read a paper together. And over time, just sort of clicked. And uh, I guess it was 2016 that we started the Magnificast as basically an excuse to uh, to keep hanging out and and collaborating. Um, yeah, what am I leaving out, Matt? And what, what are you up to right now? <laughs> yeah, I think that all sounds pretty good. I don't know. I don't know what you're leaving out. I think that's all. I think that's it. We met online and then we were friends forever. Um, that's all <laughs> there is to it. Uh, yeah, let's see. I guess my my own academic story is a little bit more varied <laughs> and it meanders a bit. Let's see. I have a PhD uh, from a very interesting institution called the European Graduate School and my PhD is in media and communication. I also have a master's degree in political philosophy and cultural theory, and that's from the University of Illinois. Yeah, Dean and I have worked on a lot of stuff together, a few um, essays about technology. Um, we did a really cool piece uh, that I like think about pretty fondly about Cuba and pirate radio and uh, in Latin America as well. A lot of good stuff there. So I think that is a pretty good way to characterize my um, some of my research interests though, is uh, I'm really interested in the ways that people use media to uh, do politics. Uh, I think kind of largely that's what I'm about. Uh, since, I don't know, I guess the last year or so, I've left academia altogether. Um, now I work in the labor movement and have a sort of advocacy type job. And yeah, I'm putting together, I'm, I'm putting some of that, those ideas I have about media and politics uh, to use now and uh, sort of a different, in a different register. I just wanted to ask a, a question just about your podcast specifically. You characterize it as being about the intersection or the relationship between Christianity and, and leftist politics. So I'm just wondering if each of you could say a bit about your work on the podcast, what, what, you're, what you take yourself to be up to in, in those conversations there. Maybe also say a bit about the relationship between leftist politics and Christianity. Like is, I guess, you know, one of my questions is, is that a relationship that you take yourself to be forging in, in your conversations? Or is that something you see that already 
is already kind of an inherent relationship between leftist politics and, and Christianity. I think largely what our podcast does is uh, two two things, maybe. One is that it it definitely like looks at the history of Christianity and leftist politics and just kind of like surveys the ground and sees what's going on. Um, and I think that's really helpful because people often don't know about that history. It's one that's been covered over. It's one that's been forgotten on purpose or maybe on accident in some cases. So just to kind of like it's it's a it's a big educational endeavor, I think, in one in one aspect. But the other aspect, it's like way more about uh, g- giving people permission to live certain types of lives that I think um, Christianity doesn't do a very good job of telling us about. You know, so in doing that historical work, I think we find all types of different examples of Christian life that are explicitly anti-capitalist and are often socialist or often anarchist. And I think just in bringing some of those stories to light, it gives people the opportunity to think about their relationship with their, you know, religious religious expression and with their politics a little bit more um, explicitly. And, you know, sometimes I think for a lot of people that kind of message us around the show, you know, tell us things like, you know, I grew up in a very conservative house. And then I think I I left uh, Christianity altogether when I started having more like leftist thoughts about politics. But your show is kind of, you know, giving me a way to think about them in in conjunction with one another rather than keeping them separate. So I think that's kind of what we're doing is is just uh, giving people permission to uh, find a different type of Christianity that uh, than, than the one that maybe they're familiar with. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, and that's also been one of the most exciting things about the show is getting a chance to look over that history ourselves and also being able to hear about what that's opening up for other folks. Um, I'll circle back to that other part of the question, because uh, I think Matt did a great job situating the podcast um, about Christianity and the left. You know, one thing that we talk about on the show a lot is that Christianity is a really complicated faith tradition. And uh it is complicit in a lot of the things that people on the left are fighting against, right? Things like the project of colonialism and, and European colonization in particular, uh, the projects of things like current neoliberal practices, a lot of which depend on Christianity. You know, we're we're coming out of 2020 where this was kind of a, a reckoning with Christianity in some respects of uh, Trump's Christianity, but then also trying to think through what does Christianity mean for and against the Biden administration. So um, we tend to take a more complicated view that Christianity is a, a big, complicated, global, historical community. So it's not just one thing. You can't really boil it down to, well, this is just what Jesus said. And so therefore, that's what Christianity is. And then you could kind of create really easy analogies between the left or any other kind of politics. Um, instead, we try to see that dialogue as something you have to enter into and sort of metabolize and intervene in and, and push that in a direction that you think might be, you know, better or worse. So uh, it's not a, a totally cynical use of Christianity. You know, we're both Christians. So there's something about the story of Christianity that's uh, still compelling um, on, its, on its own terms. But uh, the idea would be, we're, we're not saying that Christianity is ultimately secretly a leftist politics, uh, although we think that it has a lot of unique resources for the left in it. It might point us in in particular left-wing directions if we allow ourselves to sort of open ourselves to that horizon. So we're trying to uh, to see where all those productive tensions kind of lead us. Awesome. So we've been talking a little bit already about religion and politics or Christianity and politics um, and how uh, you two address that in, in your podcast. But your your research interests also overlap on the topic of media and technology. So I'm, I'm curious as to what that angle, media theory or theory about technology, brings to our understanding of Christianity. 
both Matt and I sort of found our way to this character named Paul Virilio, who's a French um, philosopher. Well, he doesn't call himself a philosopher, but he is. <laughs> <laughs> he, he thinks really hard about uh, technology and he comes out of a uh, tradition of phenomenology and that sort of thing. And uh, Virilio has this sort of understanding of media and technology that is always attentive to the way that Technology is, you know, it allows us to do certain things in the world, but it also contains all kinds of catastrophes or potential for danger or disruptions. You know, it uh, it allows us to ask more interesting questions about technology that um, that try to attend to the way that technology does disrupt our perceptive worlds, um, and not always for the for the worse, but in ways that we have to be very careful about kind of taking stock of. And uh, I mean, we can talk more about how that relates to, to Christianity in a minute. But um, just in terms of media theory, I think it's such a, uh, a helpful way of looking at things. Um, one catchphrase from Virilio is, if you invent the ship, you also invent the shipwreck. And uh, I think about that all the time with technologies. Like whenever we invent a new thing, we're also bringing into the world the possibility for a unique kind of problem. And uh, being able to sort of think really hard and carefully about uh, problems alongside potentialities is something that I think our society tends not to be very good at, at doing. Um, so it's an important sort of sobering moment. Yeah, I mean, really is a really great place to go, I think. Uh, for me specifically, I tend to think about technology in a really historical kind of way. But um, I think what's really interesting is that uh, usually we think of technology and science as something that's like very divorced from the ways from belief, I guess. And I think um, when you look at all of the human peculiarities around our uses of media and our uses of technology, I think what you find out is that uh, things that we think about science and you know, like very rational things like computers and, uh, and that kind of thing are actually really caught up in our, our circuits of belief as well. Um, there's, a t there's like a thousand different examples of this, but uh, one I always go to is, uh, well, okay, I had a student in a class a long time ago, and um, they would always have their phone out on their desk. And that would bug me as a teacher and I told them to put it away. But they always told me that having their phone helped them think. And I was like, you know, like, how is how is that possible? And he's like, well, you know, um, we're, we're talking in class or whatever. And sometimes I need to like, clear my mind. So I like spin my phone around in my hand in a certain way. And then he'll he said, and sometimes if I'm really thinking hard, he like he would open his phone up and like swipe to close the apps on the phone. And I guess like what, what what's really interesting about that to me is that, uh, you know, we think about our world as like really explicit little bubbles that don't touch like you know we got technology and science and whatever and then religion and belief and all kinds of other superstition and, and whatever is something like another bubble altogether but I, I think um when we start looking at the ways that people you know inhabit the world alongside their media and like, alongside technology and how we kind of like use them to think in ways that are not immediately rational we, we see that a lot of these things are really interconnected that religion and technology and sort of the gestures we use to think through the world with uh with our technological appendages are not uh, so divorced from one another yeah i just wanted to ask a, a question like religion as a relationship between a certain intellectual or faith stance and a technology like are there ways in which that relationship between technology and belief helps us think about what christianity is or, or perhaps, Dean, what you were mentioning about the the the, sh the ship and the shipwreck—you know how a new technology is also an opportunity for you know a new catastrophe. Are there ways to to I guess more specifically bring it to, to Christianity as a as a kind of technology or a kind of media? 
Yeah, I, I think so. Um, religion itself is actually a, a, a big technology or or it's even better to talk about technology rather than to talk about the term religion as a way of kind of setting aside certain parts of our lives that, like Matt was saying, are, are in bubbles that don't touch other parts. Um, you know, one thing, one kind of central tenet of media theory is that the things that we make, the tools that we make kind of work back on us in ways that we don't really understand or or can't really anticipate. And they have the, all these unintended effects. And uh, Christianity, you know, because of the subject matter, uh, because it has to do with God and all this kind of metaphysical stuff all the time um, in our language, we we tend to sort of put that off in the, the realm of ideas. But Christianity as a historical force is very much a thing of this world. And uh, whatever we mean when we talk about Christianity, we are also always talking about certain forms of life, certain patterns of of being and behaving that that we've created as human beings in order to uh, try to hopefully at its best be faithful to the message of Jesus Christ. So, you know, when I think about like going to Catholic mass, I, I go to mass and there's all kinds of things in that space that are designed to turn me into a certain kind of person. Right. So by the time you leave the mass, uh, the intention, whether it, it works or not, hopefully, is to sort of have conformed you more fully to living a life that Christ wants us to live. So the question if, with a sort of technological view of that whole thing is, first of all, what kind of life is Christianity creating in the world? And, and many Christianities, right, Catholic or otherwise. And uh, secondly, what kinds of unintended effects actually get created with that, too? So Matt and I spend a lot of time talking about that side of things, uh, both how does Christianity maybe prepare us to to go into social action in some really interesting ways, and also how does it shape our thinking in ways that we might not be aware of for both better and for worse? I, I think that in the inability to think through all of the different things in our life as types of technology that do, um, like Marshall McLuhan say, work work us over, you know, we, we miss out on all of this nuance. So I think it's really important to think think through that. I mean, even something as simple as like, uh, oh, so Dean's Catholic, but I'm Episcopalian. So something as e simple as the like Book of Common Prayer is a type of technology, right? It gives you a whole script of like what you're supposed to say, and you repeat it with everybody else, and you know when to stand, and you know when to kneel, and you know when to cross yourself, and everything else, right? It's it's kind of a it's an instruction booklet that you use, and you sort of trace certain types of thought uh, when you go through it, and um, needless to say, like if the technology you're using to practice your religion is bad, it's going to kind of create bad desires in you. It's going to create bad thoughts in you. Right. And I, I, a lot of this too is bound up in the ways that we teach Christianity to people. <laughs> this is such a, such a deep cut, but uh, a while back, I, I wrote this piece for America magazine about the practice of like medieval Jesuit theater uh, in schools. And they, so the idea, I mean, Jesuits have this sort of like, very interesting idea about embodiment in terms of uh, religious teaching, uh, kind of through the the meditations. But uh, in in the piece I was writing, I was kind of focusing on the ways that Jesuit educators in the medieval ages and in the Renaissance they would they would use theater with like surprisingly complex um, special effects uh, to teach you know their pupils about what like moral lessons about Christianity, but also about hell. And, uh, you know, you'd sort of bring bring hell to life for a bunch of little kids on a stage with like smoke screens and like really primitive types of uh, um, projectors. You could project the devil on the wall and, and scare the crap out of all these little kids. And I think that's I mean, first of all, it's great. It's fun. It's so great. <laughs> Scaring kids 
10 out of 10. But, <laughs> but just the same, like we use all types of different media to teach ourselves about, about religion, about what it means to practice that religion. And through the repetition of these things, we just certain, we, we learn a certain type of com comportment of ourselves in the world. And uh, for better or for worse, that's Christianity. With, with that in mind, like thinking about religion as technology, as that very broad thing, I'm especially interested in how out of that different and even opposing political visions for, for the world can emerge. The, the idea that you have Christianity in tension with another form of Christianity, like I think is extremely helpful as in terms of diagnosing um, political tensions and political disagreements. But then it also seems to expose another problem because as someone engaged in that tension, I, I, I can no longer point to my opponent as someone who's downright wrong you know, has misunderstood the Christian text, um, I have to kind of understand how the thing that I'm, the thing that I'm a part of is somehow informing that other thing, you know, and I, you know, I might disagree with it, but I can't just, I can't just dismiss it. Yeah, I think that's really an important point though, Andrew, because, okay, for example, in the United States, there is a, uh, a social movement that I, I have a lot of respect for and I think are generally really good. Um, the Poor People's Campaign, led by William Barber, he's a pastor, he is, it's a, just generally like a good movement. But the sort of like Christianity that that movement relies on falls into exactly the problem that we're talking about here, where, you know, if <laughs> to the to the people in Congress, they don't want to pass good legislation uh, who disagree about, you know, the, the worth of workers or whatever, um, you know, it falls back on calling them like heretics or just saying that, you know, they're not they're not real Christians. And I on the one hand, I actually I deeply value that type of rhetoric. I think it's great. Um, on the one hand, for a pastor to call out politicians as being like not good Christians, I think there's something like good and pastoral about that. But that's at like one level. But I think uh, the level we're talking about here, which kind of goes to something a bit deeper that, that shows that uh, we can't so easily resolve the tensions within Christianity by just uh, by just saying that part's not real or that's not the good part or, or you know, those are people are heretics. I think that we have to, you know, to be able to do justice to our own understanding of our religion and also, you know, do justice to the practice of it. I think we have to own up to the parts that are very bad. You know, that they're not, uh, they don't, they aren't standouts or carve outs as bad. They're just bad because Christianity has produced bad effects in the world. That being said, like, I think it's really important to find the very good things uh, within your religious tradition or within your political tradition and, and to plug them in together. I know I feel like this is such a like obtuse way of talking, but like, like we said a few minutes ago, the importance of like, understanding and metabolizing the whole of the Christian tradition is really important. And like, once you've done that, it's really important to find which parts to like push to the back or, you know, to hold off to the side uh, or to make central in us politics. There's like this interesting discourse going on about uh, what the religious left is and all of these interesting liberal figures who are um, motivated by their Christian identity and their sort of Christian vision for the world. And like in that discourse on the religious left, I think it's really worthwhile to interrogate and metabolize that deeper history of Christianity. And if you're going to be sort of like a left wing person, um, I think it's like worth plugging in better people <laughs> than uh, than the people who are currently sitting in uh, the Senate or who uh, who ran for president. So, yeah, the point is that like you have all these different sort of pieces um, and it's important to arrange them in just the right way and to uh, be able to draw on a, a deep well of uh, faithful witness uh, that does something good in the world rather than just kind of the stuff you see on TV. Yeah, I think that's right. In order to fully understand even the nature of something that you don't like, 
it's important to understand all the pieces that are feeding into it. Like, just to give you one example, uh, the situation of slavery in the United States, mm. right? Um, you cannot understand slavery in the South if you don't understand Christianity. And the history of race in a place like the U.S. is obviously very complicated, but one extremely troubling and analytically interesting piece of that story is uh, for a long time, slaveholders in the U.S. wouldn't baptize their slaves because there was a law in England that said Christians can't be enslaved. So if you baptize them, then you're in trouble. You're going to lose your whole you know, political economy if you do that. Um, so all these missionaries came to the U.S. and they were upset about this development because, of course, their job is to save people's souls. Um, and so in the effort to uh, be anti-racist or something or to not not sort of exclude people based on race, what they did instead was say, look, it's not because these people are Christian that they have to be slaves, but it's because of the color of their skin. And they came up with all kinds of theological ways of sorting that out. You know, there's a, a long story about uh, the curse of Ham in the, the story of Noah that uh, black people, they would say, these racist missionaries would say, were actually descendant from, from this kind of biblical lineage. Then they said to slaveholders, you should actually baptize your slaves because they'll be even better slaves. They won't rebel against you. They won't have revolts because they'll be kind and gentle. And so uh, you can't really understand the racism of the South and the regime of slavery without understanding that extremely important mechanism by which Christians basically invented uh, racial discourse in in a place like the you know what would become the United States, the British colonies at the time. So uh, if you really want to sort of understand and come to terms with the history of something like uh, racial um, injustice today, you have to at least be able to find a way to pull that through line through. And of course, you know the the flip side of this too is that Christianity also created all kinds of rebellions against the slaveholder uh, religion and slaveholder regime prior to the Civil War, right? Like people like Nat Turner or John Brown, these are also Christians who, because of their own Christianity, thought it must be bad to enslave people. So they held, you know, massive rebellions against that kind of order. So it's not to say that Christianity just is slavery, um, but it is to say uh, slavery in the United States is definitely a Christian phenomenon in a really troubling way. We should be troubled by it. You know, we shouldn't sort of put that away. And at the same time to say Christianity also has this uh, liberating potential against that kind of slaveholding Christianity. And we have to sort of find a way to do justice to both if we really want to get what's going on. Um, it's a really complicated way to level at which to have that conversation, but it does open up a lot even for us today, I think, to, to think at that level. That's a really good way to put it, though, Dean, because, I mean, you know, we're, we're on this podcast, we're talking about building things. But really, I mean, what we're doing is saying that there's more than one expression of Christianity. And, um, you know, the, the goal is to figure out a way to faithfully pick one over the other. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So just to shift gears a bit, we're focusing in this series on how people who are working generally in political thought are, are grappling with the, the roller coaster year, you might say, that was that was 2020 and that continues to be um, our present. So thinking like in the midst of, of, of the pandemic that we're all living in, um, thinking in the wake of, of increased awareness of anti-Black racism, not just in the U.S., but in Canada and all over the world and other issues that are that have come out of 2020. Uh, what's what's one thing that's been front of mind for each of you as you've been thinking about the last year? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, it's hard to find a front of my mind, I feel, <laughs> in the last year. Uh, there's a lot of complicated stuff going on. But I think, you know, one thing that I think the most about with all of this is uh, what is life going to look like after the pandemic? 
what kinds of things are we going to need to to build after this pandemic? Um, I think there's a lot of rhetoric about going back to normal. Um, one of the uh, sort of rhetorical tropes on the left, but also among lots of Christians, including people like Pope Francis, is um, that is precisely what we don't want. Uh, the normal that was operative before the pandemic was incredibly uh, unjust and unequal. And the, the pandemic has only exacerbated many of those inequalities uh, and revealed them, you know, even more strongly than they were. Right. So to me, the question is, OK, well, then we're, we're not going back to that. What does that mean that we should be sort of thinking about, strategizing about, organizing about now in order to to win a better world after this? So that that's at the front of my brain. It's a I, I don't have a, a lot of extremely simple answers for it, but it's the thing that keeps me up at night or uh, makes me keep talking to Matt once a week. But something else that really sticks out to me that's at the front of my mind this past year is the idea of coalition building. I think that uh, a lot of times in politics, we have, uh, at least people on the left, there's a tendency to think too simplistically about politics or to think in terms of like certain types of ideological purity um, that, you know, we just need to have like a good democratic centrist party to do the things that need to happen. But I think what I've come to understand a lot more deeply in the last year is the importance of building broad coalitions of um people who might not have the exact same ideological commitments, but do have uh, very similar desires for what needs to happen kind of immediately. Um, I mean, the presidential election of this past year was bad. I didn't like it. <laughs> it was a very tense time, a very bad situation. Uh, you know, the person I wanted to be the president in the US didn't even become the president in the US. It's, it's kind of bad. But I think even all that aside, um, what I did see was a lot of public institutions kind of taking a deep breath and, and uh, giving one big push where maybe a lot of people didn't think it was possible. Um, right, right before the election, um, a lot of labor organizations came together. A lot of other progressive groups uh, in the United States came together. And uh, I think that was a really interesting thing to see and just how it played out. I guess it just showed me that, you know, there are ways forward if uh, if organizing, if organizing for those ways forward is at the center of your uh, your movement or your struggle and not sort of like siloing yourself off to just doing your one thing. So, yeah, I, I think that uh, in, in the U.S. at least that was a really powerful moment, even though I didn't like <laughs> I think I mean, even having even having Joe Biden be the president is still not really the outcome I wanted. But I think the way that, you know, the the United States left got there is at least heartening that uh, you can see that it is possible to build bigger connections um, between, you know, labor and progressive movements. And that's pretty good. I'm wondering, like, are there any specific ideas or kind of common familiar sources that have shown themselves to be especially bankrupt in this time? And then on the other side, what, especially within the, the tradition of Christian leftism, are there other sources that you're finding that we should appeal to more, more readily? There's a way of thinking about the world that suggests uh, everything is kind of ultimately about just making sure that we all have kind of neutral rules on which we can all rely. And then, you know, if, if we're maintaining the uh, the ecology of those rules appropriately, then we'll all be able to, uh, to ensure that everybody has a fair shot. The Marxist tradition is more interested in the question of, well, who's making the rules and, and how are they really operating rather than how do we sort of, you know, aspire them to operate? And I think that to me is one of the biggest things the pandemic has revealed is that, you know, the, the rules that we think uh, or that we'd like to sometimes to think are operating in our society are not only are they sort of not doing what, what we think they do, but they actually are accomplishing a lot of very uh, bad outcomes for people who, who are using those rules for their own benefit. And, and that allows us to wonder if they've always been for the, that benefit. So a, a concrete example might be something like wealth inequality. 
you know, uh, one of the headlines that we've seen over and over during this headline is, um, on the one hand, you have workers uh, desperately asking companies for PPE, for protective equipment, um, while on the other hand, you know, Jeff Bezos and uh, Elon Musk are becoming the richest people in the world, you know, historically richer than any human being has ever been in the history of planet Earth. And to me, it's like this is not a failure of the rules to kind of make everybody put on the right playing field. But it's it's uh, it begs the question as to perhaps this is kind of what the rules are basically for uh, maximizing profits for some and, you know, leaving other people out to dry. And uh, of course, that has all kinds of racial um, sort of valences and, and uh, gendered valences and things like that as well. So I think that's the, the idea that is uh, passe to me or one that I hope sort of continues to go away during this pandemic is that um, if we all just kind of return to the rules, uh, everything will, will work itself out and we just need some better rules and, and it'll all pan out. I think we need a, a much more complicated understanding of, of political economy, of how power is really distributed um, that, you know, encourages us maybe to say we should uh, get rid of the table, like a good a good Jesus moment, you know, flipping over the table in the temple. Um, that's uh, in the Christian tradition. That's what I'm I think uh, I'm here for at this moment in my life. Yeah, there's a liberal idea that if if we just follow the rules and we, and we have people who are honorable and have enough integrity to follow the rules, then our political system um, will just be fine and sort of work out the best for everybody. But like, clearly that's not the case. Um, in the US right now, a huge ongoing like battle at the le level of legislature is uh, uh, is raising the, the minimum wage. So in the United States, the federal minimum wage is $7.25 an hour, and that's bad. Nobody can live on that much money, it's crazy. Um, and at the uh at the sort of legislative level um the senators and like representatives they're trying to uh pass this big covid relief bill and within it is a um a plan to raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour which is still not perfect but like much better but anyways it's all been hampered because of this parliamentarian rule that uh, says you can't pass a a big law about the minimum wage under the circumstances of budget reconciliation. It's this whole thing. It's just like it's this wild uh, moment where um, this thing that would literally give 32 million Americans a raise is going to be put on the back burner for extremely bourgeois political reasons, right? Um, all that being said, though, I think that like there are actually some very helpful ways of thinking about procedure and democracy that uh, would do everyone <laughs> a lot of good to hear about. Um, there's a political philosopher who Dean and I like a whole lot. Uh, she is Chilean, uh, but was a an advisor to Hugo Chavez in Venezuela. Her name is Marta Harnaker. Um, I think she is very interesting for a lot of reasons. Um, she's, I think, a really good articulator of um, of what people call 21st century socialism. Um, but what I really like about Marta Harnaker is that... Um, I think she, uh, just like I said, right? Um, she understands the the like the problem with very bourgeois procedures and bourgeois democracy, and uh, she gives a, a very good blueprint uh, based on um, the like the constituent assemblies of Venezuela and um, things like that uh, to offer up something different, a different way of doing democracy, a different way of doing procedure, a whole different way of thinking about legislation and how communities can govern themselves, starting from the bottom and working their ways up. Um, so uh, I guess all that to say, 
Um, I, I don't like political procedure at this very moment, but to be more exact, I think it's it's bourgeois political procedure that does not value the lives of uh, working people. That I, I think is the uh, the most clear uh, bankrupt idea. But there are um, some pretty helpful socialist alternatives to those ideas. And I think that uh, folks in, uh, in North America should investigate those ideas. Yeah, I think to, to return to that positive side, too, um, there's, I think, a tendency on the left and especially among Christians, <laughs> but also on the left in general to say, um, you know, we're, we're pretty good at saying there's a lot of bad stuff going on or like this is not what we want. Um, but then people are very hesitant to put forward any kind of alternative and I mean, Christians are sort of masters of this, <laughs> you know, like we'll, we'll say, yes, we need social justice, um, but we might not have a, a, a good idea of what that actually looks like in practice. Um, or we might want to distance ourselves from other historical projects in the world. And to me, I think uh, one of the most encouraging things, um, the more I study, you know, history and global politics is that uh, you actually don't have to invent um, every political idea whole cloth every time you think that there's something bad going on in the world, uh, but you can actually learn from lots of different political experiments, both the successes and failures of other countries. You know, uh, Harnicker is so valuable because she, as a political philosopher, is trying to, to do that with respect to Venezuela. Um, that's also true of a place like Kerala in India. You know, in the pandemic, I'm I'm really curious about learning about places like Vietnam, for example, right, where their COVID rate is just like remarkably low. And there's all kinds of uh, uh, great articles out there just asking, how is this happening? Or countries like Cuba, where um, they've managed to contain the, the coronavirus in much better ways than Canada or the United States. I mean, there's all kinds of variables involved, right? They're a small island, et cetera. But uh, they're doing that with far less, far fewer resources. And they're also sending, you know, doctors abroad to places like Italy and elsewhere. And I think to me, it's like, I don't want to have the burden of um, imagining a completely new politics totally out of the blue. Um, but I want to be able to learn from people who've actually been been trying, you know, and, and working on things. And uh, that's that's the thing that gives me hope now is that uh, there's actually a ton of examples, a ton of there's no shortage of people to to learn about and learn from. Cool. So my my last question, going to kind of ask you to stay with the sort of positive angle of imagining uh, what kind of possible futures there are sort of post 2020. And I just wonder whether the events of the past year, um, how they've affected your thinking as academics, like as researchers and especially as teachers. So are there any specifically pedagogical dimensions to, to some of these issues that, that have come up for you, uh, especially lately? Those of us who are involved in teaching, how can we be a part of imagining a, a, a different future? That's a great question. I'm, I'm teaching these classes at ICS, a number of them, and I, I've been thankfully uh, able to teach them online even before the, the pandemic. And I think it's, education is a real challenge, uh, but it's also giving us a lot of opportunities to think about how to create spaces that are uh, invitational, dialogical, doing the hard work of also understanding what kind of burden education is on people's lives. Um, you know, it's a special burden during the pandemic, but it's always a burden, I think. And um, as tough as it is for people to learn, I hope that teaching through this experience is making people more empathetic and sympathetic. Uh, that's something I've always valued as a student at ICS. I feel like my mentors and professors are very patient and kind and understanding and sympathetic to me as a, a student. But I also think, you know, Matt uh, Matt was teaching for a while, um, but we also think a lot about doing Pedagogy VR podcast. I don't know, Matt, maybe I could turn that over to you to see if you have any thoughts about that. Yeah, for sure. Um, 
here's a wild thing. So I, I got a master's degree. I have a PhD. I taught in a university for like five years and I never, ever once <laughs> even had a class about how to actually teach something. And I think that's a really jacked up thing about education, about higher education. Like the, the most prized thing is getting a job where you can just teach your subject. But when we might actually get there, we don't really know how to do that. And as a result, we end up recreating like the worst tendencies of our own academic situations. And uh, I think it would be great if academics as sort of like a class of workers could could maybe stop for a second and reconsider <laughs> you know, what our educational engagements might really look like and like what they should look like and how to avoid recreating the worst parts of academia. Also, what maybe like Dean said, though, is uh, probably looking outside of academia is is worthwhile as well. I mean, podcasts are great. Um, there's all kinds of really interesting people who are on Twitch telling you about socialism and Christianity. There's a, a great guy on YouTube named David Garcia, who is very cool as well. So I mean, there's all these other places to, I think, learn about um, politics and religion outside of the normal spaces. But also, I think that there's something really valuable to learn in um, activist spaces as sort of pedagogical places as well. I think that, uh, like, I don't know, um, joining a political organization that will actively teach you something about politics um, beyond just sort of like the historical study of it or something is really worth our, worth your time. Um, showing up to a strike line to hear workers tell you about their everyday life is a great place to learn something as well. I mean, I think that um, we're selling ourselves short. If we're people really interested in communicating educational things to people, we want to teach, teach students things, we want to teach ourselves things. I think we have to definitely step outside of the university at, at some point um, and, and look for different types of knowing. We have to learn how to listen to stories and you know even retell stories. And there's a lot to learn uh, elsewhere. Great. Well, I think that uh, call to action is as good a place as any to wrap up our conversation. So I just want to end by saying thanks, uh, Matt and Dean, for joining us here. Had a lot of great insights to offer us. And um, yeah, thanks again. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, thanks. And that brings us to our final segment, What's Your Pleasure? This is where we get to kick off our shoes and talk about the other things we do for fun. The movies and television shows we're watching, the sports and games we play, the food and drink we make and enjoy, the music we listen to, and so on. So, Andrew, what's your pleasure? Well, I don't want to be repeating too much of, of last time. We did have the first uh, spring training game between the Blue Jays and mm -hmm. uh, New York Yankees on Sunday. It was Sunday, yep. Yeah. Is this your pleasure? It's going to be your pleasure as well? <laughs> yep. Yeah. <laughs> well, look at us. Yeah, I, it was it was nice to get back to some baseball after, mm -hmm. after months away. It's, it was also kind of strange to, to think that like this is going to be a, not a normal season because um, there's still COVID restrictions and the Jays are still playing. Um, they're not, they can't play in Toronto. But at least a, a regular number of games are, are planned mm -hmm. um, as opposed to last year's, what, 60 game. Yeah. Uh, uh, season, so it's weird. It was this kind of felt normal, but but abnormal at the same time. Yeah, it's it's interesting. It's kind of a pleasure and an unpleasure for me in that, like, shortly before the preseason started, um, Rogers, who produces the Blue Jays television and radio broadcasts, announced that they were just going to do a simulcast. So the audio from the TV broadcast would be broadcast over the radio instead of um, 
having a broadcasting crew for the radio. And if you've ever listened to baseball or sports on the radio and then watched the same sport on TV, you'll know that there is a big difference between the commentating between the two media where the radio can't rely on the pictures on the TV and thus has to explain and describe everything that's going on a lot more. Right. And what's frustrating about that for me is that I think I've mentioned it on this podcast before, my um, struggles with concussions. Yeah. Well, one of the things when I first got my, um, my first concussion um, and I was in my bedroom in the dark for hours on end, I, I, every evening I looked forward to listening to the Blue Jays game. But now I'm, I'm unsure of what that will look like and pretty frustrated. So it, it comes as a pleasure and a displeasure all in one. Yeah, it's it's funny you mentioned the listening to Jays games on the radio. Like I have like one of the, those my long standing nostalgia type memories is of driving along the Niagara Parkway with my dad when I was a kid listening to Blue Jays radio, which mm. I'm almost certain would have been Jerry Howarth, like almost universally recognizable voice mm. that like you know so many people from Canada, I'm sure would would recognize as the voice of uh, of the Blue Jays for years and years and years. Just to follow up on what you said, there's something about, about radio and, and baseball. Well, that's it for our show this week. Stay with us in the weeks to come as we continue to ask our friends and colleagues to reflect upon political life after 2020 in this series. If you're interested in digging deeper into what Christianity and Marxism have to say to each other, Dean will be teaching a six-week online ICS course called The Soul of Soulless Conditions, Marxists on Christianity, Christians on Marxism. The course will take place from the week of April 19th to May 28th and needs enough students in order to run, so make sure you register as soon as you can. If you'd like to join this or any of our other upcoming remote summer courses, or to find out about our discounted auditing fees or course credit options, you can visit our website at www.icscanada.edu. You can also email our registrar, Elizabeth Aras, at academic-registrar at icscanada.edu with any questions you might have. If you'd like to know more about the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics, and the Institute for Christian Studies, you can find more information on the website just mentioned. And if anything from this week's show piqued your interest, you can also email us at criticalfaith at icscanada.edu. You can also find us on Twitter. You can follow Matt as Matt underscore Bernico. You can follow Dean as at Dean Detloff. And for more takes on Christianity and leftism, you can follow The Magnificast as at The Magnificast. You can also follow me as at Mark Standish. And you can follow ICS as at INSCHR. And from the heart of ICS, thank you all for listening. This has been Critical Faith. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, follow along with us on Spotify, or find us on your podcast app of choice. Remember, following and reviewing the podcast helps people find us and keeps us on their radar. Most importantly, tell your friends.